Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we meet a physicist who's championing the work of Donna Elbert, an American applied mathematician who worked on Nobel Prize winning physics, but did not get the credit she deserved. And we also check in with a planetary geochemist who talks about her surprising discovery of a biological toxin in a meteorite and the detective story that followed. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by ECS, the Electrochemical Society which is an official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics. Are you a scientist working in energy storage and technology, sensors, semiconductors, or infrastructure sustainability? You have the opportunity to present your research at the world's leading forum on electrochemistry and solid-state science. Submit your abstract by December 2nd for the 243rd Electrochemical Society meeting, which will be held in Boston, Massachusetts on May 28th through to June 2nd, 2023. The event is co-located with the 18th International Symposium on Solid Oxide Fuel Cells, Visit the ECS website at electrochem.org for details and join ECS in moving science forward. The history of physics includes many great women scientists who are not given due credit for their achievements. Often, their male collaborators were lauded for breakthroughs they had made, and their names have been omitted from the history books. The American applied mathematician Donna Elbert is no exception. Born in 1928, she worked as a human calculator at Yerkes Observatory in Wisconsin with the Indian-American astrophysicist Subramayan Chandrasekhar who would go on to win the 1983 Nobel Prize for Physics. Far from just doing calculations, Elbert made important contributions to our understanding of magnetohydrodynamics, and her work has recently been built on by the Coventry University physicist Susanna Horn, who joins me today to talk about Elbert and her own work. Hi, Susanna. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this podcast. So, Susanna, Donna Elbert began working with uh, Chandra Sekhar in 1948, when she was 20 years old. And her initial role was that of a calculator. C can you explain what she would have done uh, as a calculator? I mean, calculators or computers, these were quite often um, actually women who it was just considered more as a secretarial work initially. So she would not just do calculations and she would uh, use a desktop calculator, which really was the precursor of what we nowadays have as computers. She would do these calculations, but she would also do the secretarial work, like typing manuscripts and all these things. I think the main difference with Donna Albert is that she did not just do these calculations and was just given the differential equation and solved them, but she actually started to develop own methods of solving them, and sometimes more elegant solutions than were proposed by Chandrasekhar himself. 
And, and she worked with Chandrasekhar for over 30 years. W what sort of topics did they work on? So when Donna Albert initially started to work with Chandrasekhar, she worked on turbulence theory, so um, mainly by Heisenberg, so initially developed by Heisenberg, so which was, however, more of a leftover work. And then later on, she also worked on the polarization of the sky. But I think the main thing she worked on really for, um, I think from when she started in the 50s to the 1960 was on hydrodynamic and hydromagnetic stability. And that's also where she contributed the most. And then later on, when Chantrasika kind of switched gears, she also did a bit of work on general relativity. But again, usually just the basics of what he was doing, so the applied math stuff of it, of solving the equations. And very quickly, um, Elbert became a collaborator of Chandrasekhar's and also pursued research independently. What were some of her important contributions? So I think her most important contributions were really in the range of hydrodynamic and hydromagnetic stability. And these are essentially mathematical physics topics. So they rely on partial differential equations. And what we need to do is to actually solve them numerically. Even now, so we cannot solve them analytically. So we need a computer. And at least in the 50s and 80s, that, uh, 50s and 60s, that was not as easy as it is now that we just put it into MATLAB or, and get our solution. But this was really heavy calculation that took months to complete. So, Susanna, you've recently published a paper with Jonathan Arno at UCLA, and that paper builds on work that Elbert did on rotating magnetoconvective theory. Can you describe the work that she did on this in simple terms? So, the main problem, so what we are interested in is essentially convection. So, which means really uh, we look at a very simple system, heated from below, cooled from above. And then we, of course, know that everything that's heated rises and that what, um, the, when it cools down, then the fluid sinks. We have this nice circulation movement and we see that everywhere in nature. And we also know that this is what's going on in planetary interiors because we have our planetary outer core, which is made of liquid metal. And what we also know is, of course, that Earth rotates and that the uh, planetary magnetic field is generated inside this core. So we essentially have a nice convective system there. And based on the original theory by Chandrasekhar, so we know that we need to have a certain thermal forcing. So we need a big enough temperature difference to actually get this motion going in the planetary core. But then at the same time, if we rotate very rapidly, so which is the case for Earth, then these convective motions are suppressed. So it's much harder to get convection in these systems and to get the fluid into motion. If you don't have any motion, then we cannot generate a magnetic field. And at the same time, if we have a magnetic field, it also has a very similar effect to rotation, namely it suppresses the motion in the outer core. So essentially both effects would lead to um, essentially a killing of the motion, so we would lose the motion in the core, which would be really bad because that's what generates our magnet, that's what helps to drive the magnetic field generation. So, and what Donna Albert now has done, she has calculated what happens if you have both effects. What happens if you have magnetic fields and what happens if you have rotation? What happens to the convection? And the interesting thing is, if you have both effects working in concert, then it's actually much easier to get convection. So it's kind of a funny 
cancellation of effects. So even though both would suppress it, instead of making it even worse, no, actually what happens is convection is much easier to achieve. And she has done these calculations, found that there's a nice minimum endothermal driving, so that this is really the easiest way how we can generate convection. And this also is kind of the underpinning of all the theories about dynamo generation, so about the magnetic field generation and planets, because it's all based on the fact that we have this nice minimum, so that if the magnetic field, so the Lorentz force, and the rotation, so the Coriolis force, are roughly of the same strength, then we it's very easy to get strong motion. Uh, however, she went a step further. So when Chandrasekhar went on one of his lecture tours in summer, so she did all these calculations numerically. And what she found is that it's not that simple. It's not just that we have this minimum there, but that actually in a certain range of rotation rates and a certain range of magnetic field strength, there are essentially two permitted motions. So we know that this one minimum is generated by a very big um, large-scale structure. But at the same time, it is also permitted to have very small-scale structures. So, and that is very interesting because if we only had large-scale structures, that would make dynamic uh, dynamo generation very easy. However, if you have also the small-scale structures, these things become more complicated. And we cannot just use this large-scale motion to explain what's going on in planetary interiors. So it's really important that we have this theoretical basis of to understand what's going on in planetary interiors. And she really did all these calculations. And what's also interesting is that everyone essentially knows about this large-scale motion. Everyone also knows that there is some kind of coexistence range, which she first described. But it's really just a footnote in his book that this was done on Albert's book. So Susanna, Albert was not credited as an author on Chandrasekhar's papers on this topic, but in your work you've honored her key contributions by developing the idea of the Elbert range of magnetostrophic convection. Can you explain in simple terms what the Elbert range is? So magnetostrophic convection, what it means is really that we have a balance of the magnetic field and rotation, so of the Coriolis and the Lorentz force in our system. That's what magnetostrophic means, essentially. And as I said before, is that it's really when we have um, this minimum in terms of where convection onsets in our parameter regime. So the magnetostrophic range is when the Coriolis and the Lorentz force are equal. So, which means that rotation and the magnetic field strength are of equal importance. And we can map out when convection onsets for a parameter, which is essentially the magnetic field strength times the, um, the rotation rate, which would be an Elsa, it's called Elsa's a number. So, when it's one, that's essentially when we it's or around one, then convection most easily onsets. This is also the range where you can make estimates of planets. So not just Earth, but also Jupiter, Saturn, also Moon, like Ganymede. They all roughly, if we do the estimates of the magnetic field strength and their rotation rate, we know they are all roughly in this range. So, which is kind of a nice, one could argue, coincidence that they all sit there. But that's also why it's the most interesting range for planetary scientists. So that's... And what I have done uh, in my work with Jonathan Arnold was that we have looked at all these parameter con uh, con um, ranges 
So we looked at what happens if rotation dominates, what happens if the magnetic field strength dominates, and we really built upon this whole idea of that as the minimum, and then mapped out these different regimes. And what we really found is that the most interesting range is exactly the one where we have this minimum. And we see that there are not just one simple, there's not just one simple structure, there's not just one simple motion, but that we have lots of different types of physics that are there. So that's why we thought that would be appropriate to call the Albert range and to honor her work, because she was the first to notice it's not just that simple. There are much more complex things going on. And, and so you published a, a paper on this. Um, are, are you planning on doing more work on this topic in the future? So what we've done in um, this paper is essentially we really just build on the theory. So it's mainly a mathematical, so very much in the spirit of what Chandrasekhar and Donna Albert have done. And But of course, this alone is not enough to really explain what's going on in planets. And so just the next plan would be to look at um, simulations that really go further into this parameter regime, so with stronger um, thermal driving, so that we look at the non-linear regime. Um, so and to do this with numerical simulations, and then also to combine that with uh, laboratory experiments to actually see how much does this theory hold up, how much can we do with these predictions from linear theory. And, and so did you ever get to meet Donna Albert, um, either in person or, or speak to her on the phone or exchange emails? Uh, no, unfortunately, I didn't. So when I first saw this little footnote that Donna Albert essentially made this discovery of these coexistence uh, of the coexistence range and this multimodal behavior, I thought, OK, this book is from the 1960s. I knew Chandrasekhar was no longer alive, and I didn't know how young she was when she started working with Chandrasekhar. So I didn't even check. And then later on, when I really noticed in how many footnotes Donna Albert was actually mentioned, I got interested and I started to Google her. And unfortunately, the first thing that I found was her obituary. And she had just died, I think, a couple of months ago. So unfortunately, no, I did not talk to her. But, oh, that's yeah, that's rather unfortunate. And and when you say a couple of months ago, that was a couple of months ago, a couple of months before you Googled her because she died yeah. in 2019. Yes. So I've started this work, I think, 2018, probably. Ah, uh, right. Oh, so yeah. you, oh, you, you could have. Oh, that would have been nice to be able to speak to her and yeah. um, and sort of get her thoughts on on your research. No, oh, that's unfortunate. Um well, thanks. Um, thanks, Susanna, for, for, for speaking to me about this. So Susanna and Jonathan's paper is called The Elbert Range of Magnetostrophic Convection, Part 1, Linear Theory, and it's published in The Proceedings of the Royal Society A. And, and Susanna, I understand that, um, that the, 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 the name of that paper is a nod to Chandrasekhar and um, Elbert, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. So Chandrasekhar quite often published a part one, part two, part three of his papers. And the same is we uh, chose the journal because this is actually the journal where also Don Albert and Chandrasekhar published all their papers on hydrodynamic and hydromagnetic stability. Wow. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> So c congratulations on, 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 on publishing your paper and, and thanks so much for, um, for, for coming on the podcast and, and speaking to us. Yeah, thank you. 
The Lafayette meteorite was found sometime before 1931 in the U.S. state of Indiana, and it was seen as a pristine Martian meteorite that was a perfect sample to study. However, new research has revealed that the object contains a compound that causes vomiting in pigs and other animals. Margaret Harris speaks with the scientist who made the discovery. I'm speaking with Anya O'Brien, who's a postdoc in planetary and environmental geochemistry at the University of Glasgow in the UK. Regular listeners may remember that she came on the podcast a little over 18 months ago, back in March of 2021, to talk about finding a fragment of a meteorite that landed in a field in Gloucestershire. This was the first meteorite recovered from UK soil in decades. Hi, Anya. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, great to speak to you again. So I understand you've um, you've recently made another meteorite discovery. This time, the meteorite in question, um, it's known as the Lafayette meteorite, didn't land anywhere nearby. Um, how did you get interested in the Lafayette meteorite? What was known about it before you started studying it? Yeah, so um, this was a project I did during my PhD. Um, so my PhD was all about uh, meteorites from Mars and specifically organic compounds in them, um, predominantly. And basically, um, the Lafayette meteorite is a really beautiful stone. It's really quite pristine looking. What I mean by that is the fusion crust, which is the kind of melted outside of a meteorite from when it flies through the atmosphere and burns up. Um, the fusion crust of Lafayette is, is really unique. It kind of makes it look like a bit like a shell because um, it's got these kind of essentially lines from the way the atmosphere is burned up around it. Um, and because of that, uh, it means it wasn't hanging around on Earth for too long until someone picked it up. Because normally, um, if a meteorite's been sat exposed to the um, to weather, basically, uh, it gets eroded away. That fusion crust is quite sensitive, um, and therefore it meant that it hasn't had too much um, contamination, um, or it ha- we didn't think it would have. Um, and that made it a good candidate to study, to look for all, um, I, the plan was to look for organic compounds from Mars um, in that meteorite. Um, and it was basically because it looked like it was relatively pristine. And um, yeah, that was, that was the original plan. And it just, my, my project ended up going in a completely different direction, basically. So what was that different direction? You say this meteorite was um, relative, was thought to be quite uncontaminated. What did you what did you find out when you studied it? Yeah, so basically what I did was um, I took a piece of a kind of interior sample. So this is a bit of the rock that's not from the outside. Um, we had it crushed up um, and we basically dissolved it in some different organic solvents and put it through a fancy mass spectrometer um, along with um, another Martian meteorite as well and a few different organic, a few different Martian um, analogs. So these are rocks that are similar to Martian meteorites, Martian regolith, that kind of thing. Um, And then we put them in this mass spectrometer to just see what's in there. Um, So it's what you call a non-targeted or untargeted study of just like a bunch of different organic solvents. Just let's just kind of see a whole different bunch of compounds. Um, And the aim being what might be in there, what would likely be Martian, um, 
the two Martian meteorites we used in the study were um, from the same, um, thought to be from the same lava flow on Mars, um, same sort of volcanic complex, so an ejected planet at the same time. So we're like, if there's stuff in common with those two meteorites, then um, that kind of, you'd think, okay, well, they, those things are probably from Mars then. So that was the, that was the plan. And then um, we did this, I did the lab work back in sort of late summer, autumn 2019. That was the kind of crushing and dissolving and things like that. And then the um, we didn't get the data, I think, until February 2020. Um, so you can imagine I had a lot of time on my hands by the time I'd worked out, once I'd processed it and was starting to look at what we had come March 2020, um, at which point I essentially had a long list on a spreadsheet of here's all the compounds in the meteorite. Um, and I was just scrolling down the list of these are hundreds of different compounds. And most of them just had really long chemistry names. So like one, two, methyl, dioxy, whatever. Just you can imagine anyone who did chemistry at high school, you can imagine the sort of thing. And I just, at this point, I didn't, I didn't really have a plan specifically on what, what avenue to go down. It was just like looking at what was in one sample and not in another, what was in the blanks and not in my samples that would be a laboratory contaminant, that kind of thing. And this one just jumped out at me um, and it was called vomitoxin. And it just jumped out because it had that name. <laughs> yeah, It doesn't sound very pleasant. No, exactly, it didn't. And um, I, we, by this point it was a complete lockdown and I'd, uh, I'd just been spending the rest of my time really pretty miserable like we all were at that point. And I just Googled, Googled that name and I looked it up and it said that this was a toxin that is produced by a crop disease. Okay. Um, this crop disease is called fusarium head blight or um, white head scab or something like that. And uh, I just thought, oh, that's cool. And I basically didn't really think much of it at that point. I just had a meeting with my supervisors, I think a couple of days later, um, my PhD supervisors. And I said, huh, this is funny. Found that in the meteorite. Uh, there's a bit of a crop disease thing. And uh it was actually my supervisors that said, um, that's really interesting because this meteorite, Lafayette, isn't one that we actually know the backstory of. Okay. So so presumably this vomitoxin, you're not, not saying that this crop disease existed on Mars. Because this <laughs> must be an earthbound contaminant. Yes, exactly. So my supervisors, I think it, it just clicked something in, in my supervisor's um, brain where they were like, okay... Um, we don't know the backstory of, of Lafayette. We don't know where it was found. Maybe this will help us understand what happened to it when it landed on Earth. We're not saying that this, this crop disease came from Mars. Um, so what they said was, at this point, why don't you just look at the details of that disease and, and if it's likely to have happened in Indiana, where this, this the one story we did have was, a sort of vague thing about it being found by a student and their name was forgotten and things like that. So um, in, in, in Indiana, in the sort of probably about sort of approximately 1920s. And so they were just like, why don't you just look up that disease and see if it's even a thing uh, at that stage. Um, and so I did, and that started this complete bonkers rabbit hole that I went down. 
um, that lasted months and months, basically. <laughs> yeah, so you, so you did some detective work, I think, taking this presence of this vomitoxin as like, a clue for where the meteorite might have landed. Is that right? Yeah, kind of, pretty much. So um, the the original, the best record we have, or the most accepted, I suppose, record of the of the meteorite is that a student from Purdue University was fishing by a pond when it, uh, this stone fell into the mud nearby. And then he handed it into the university and they thought it was like a glacial sample. So the outside of the rock, um, there is a fusion crust, in fact, the university thought it was like scratches from a glacier. So they just stuck it in a drawer and didn't, well, like, oh, it's nothing interesting. Um, and it wasn't until a few years later that someone was like, oh, no, wait, that's a meteorite. But by that point, they'd forgotten that student's name. Um, other, the only thing they could remember was that he was a black student. And so this was a kind of early 20th century America. You can imagine kind of the associations with that as pretty, you know, at that point I was like, okay, this is a story that kind of needs telling. What more can I dig into this? More than just the fact that this is kind of cool that it's associated with a crop disease, you know? Um, so I thought, okay, are there records of, like, let's see about this disease, like, was it a thing? So it turns out this disease is a really big deal in Indiana. Um, so much so there are annual records of it at a county level um, in the state. And even now there's a whole department dedicated to, like, plant diseases, and there's people researching this specific disease at Purdue University even now. Um, which was really handy, by the way, <laughs> when I, uh, I I reached out to the university in sort of summer 2020 and I said, hi, I'm doing this bonkers bit of detective work. And I want to know, is this feasible? I could have found this thing and what could we know about it? And um, so one of the authors on the paper is is a botan or even a plant botany disease specialist or something at Purdue. So that was really useful to be like, what would that mean and what would we actually have found and things like that. So, yeah, so we basically, what we did was I went back through annual records of the disease. Um, there's literally a, a thing called Indiana plant diseases on an annual record <laughs> in the proceedings of Indiana Academy of Sciences or something. <laughs> so I went back through those records and just looked at what what years is it highest in the county because in the, in the account it says he found it in Tippecanoe County where the Purdue is. And I just looked at when was the disease at its highest prevalence because we kind of discussed it. And if this thing was picked up in a bit of mud in a pond, there must have been a lot of this disease, like the toxin around for it to be a high enough concentration to, have, to be still detectable. I mean, A, 100 years later, right? But also, you know, to have be a high enough concentration to be if it wasn't literally in a if he wasn't literally in a wheat field or um barley or whatever it might be so that was kind of what we thought so um i went through the records and it, basically there's two years that really stood out um, and one of them in particular so that was 1919 is stands out by miles um in terms of the amount of the disease at the time um and 1927 had a lot as well not quite to the same scale um, and so then we thought, okay, that bit fits. Um, what about the, the account of the fact that he was a black student? Were there even black students at this point? Because 
you know, this is uh, 1920s America, like we didn't even know. So um, we were really lucky the university librarian was mega on board with us and between the librarian and um, one of the planetary science professors there, they literally went back through every, the yearbook page by page for those two years and found, um, so there were three black students in 1919 and there was one in 1927 in the whole university. That was it, which is pretty depressing <laughs> if you think about the size of a university. Um, so I guess what we thought of thought was, well, if the accounts are as they are, if, if they, you know, if the main you know, first paper about this meteorite is true, um, we're kind of saying that this is the most likely story, if you like. Um, and what's cool about it as well is it wasn't just this one compound we found that kind of um, constrict or supports this story. Is in amongst those other hundreds of chemicals in there or compounds, there was a few other uh, plant-based molecules as well that are native to Indiana. So um, this was about probably about this time last year, maybe a bit earlier. Um, after we'd done all this detective work, I was like, okay, maybe I should check and see if there's other things in there that, you know, strengthen the story. And there's about 10 or 12 other compounds that are similar kind of plants and things that you would, that are very much native to that area of Indiana, which sort of support this thing that the original story, right? That it fell mm. in this kind of rural environment. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of what happened. And we'll just really neatly fell into place, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, I mean, these, these you know, I said there were, there were four black students in total. Uh, um, yes. The names, I think, were Clinton Edward Shaw, Clyde Silence, Hermanza Edward F Edwin Fauntleroy, and Julius Lee Morgan. Do we yes. know anything more about them than just their names? You know, were they were they science students? Were they physics students? Did they know about... Um, clearly, they, they, this, the student knew that this was a meteorite and it was important, but do we know anything more about them? Uh, yes, yeah, so I did a bit of digging at the, back in the, when I first found out who they were. Um, so I think one of them was a pharmacy student. None of them were geologists, which is what I find really interesting. The department didn't even have a geology department back then, which I think might have been why, or might have added to why they didn't believe it. Well, we don't know the story, right? We don't know if the, he said it was a meteorite or he just saw it. We don't know the story for sure. But the fact they didn't even have a geology department might have been it's probably why they didn't know it was a meteorite, right? Um, so yeah, I think one of them was a pharmacy student, something like that. I think one of them might have been engineering. And um, I had a great time when I was digging around. Um, I was just this was when I, this was probably eighteen months ago, something like that. One of them, I think their daughter or son, I think it was their daughter, was like really big deal in the civil rights movement, which was like amazing. Um, and the thing is, we did we. It's been a weird thing where it's like we don't know what level to, you know, we don't know if it's, we don't know for sure if it's even any of them, right? It could have, you know, um, but it, we're just saying like, we, this is a strong likelihood that it's one of these people, if the original story is true, right? And my gosh, if one of them has got a living relative now, like we, we would love to just be like, you know, maybe it's something you'd talk about in a, in a family, right? There's probably a great great grandchild might be alive now, something like that. Um, someone, when I when we first posted, when, it, when we, the news all came out, um, I had other people do, do some digging as well. And someone managed to find one of their gravestones and all sorts. I think one of them ended up a professor at, 
of pharmace- pharmaceutical sciences themselves. So it's, it's been a kind of amazing thing because lots of other people have got into the detective work as much as I did, you know, um, which has been really lovely. So apart from the detective work angle, I mean, yeah. it's great that you've been, been able to pin down sort of the most likely year and, and some of the most likely people to have discovered it. But what did, have you learned really about these, um, the nature of contaminants? Because I think you said that you thought that this was, this meteorite was previously thought to be quite pristine, yet you found all this earthbound gunk on it. Yeah, absolutely. That, to be honest, that's irrespective of the detective work. That's the kind of important implication of this work, really, because the rest is just kind of putting things together in a kind of way that seems to fit. But what you can't argue with is the fact that this is a hundred year old rock, a rock that's been on Earth for a hundred years. And we had a really tiny bit of it, right? We're talking tens of milligrams. And if we've got a bit of contaminant from Earth from a hundred years ago that's still sticking around, the main thing that shows is that, my gosh, when we bring bits back from Mars, like when we spent billions of dollars to bring bits back from Mars, we've got to be so careful because it can get contaminated so, so easily. And we should really keep a record of every way that things are stored. Um, I think it also really shows like the importance of the kind of cultural history of meteorites. I think it's a really nice way of highlighting the kind of human link to meteorites, right? There's really famous ones like um, Tutankhamun. There's like a dagger in his tomb that was made of an iron meteorite, right? So there's lovely little times throughout history where there's been connections between humans and meteorites. And um, I mean, even with Winchcombe, right? I don't think anyone's ever going to forget that it landed on a driveway a couple of meters away from some guinea pigs. I, at least I definitely won't, but there's a lot of people that won't as well. But I think with this vomiting pigs, it's quite fun, isn't it? The fact that this was a toxin that makes pig syrup but it's 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 that human connection that now links it to like a time in america that you know it's really it's really sad to me that the only way we were able to constrain this is because it was at a time when there was you know there was so much racism in particular in america like black people were persecuted and therefore there were so few black students do you know what i mean like i think it's as well as the scientific literal like this is why it matters for Mars sample return. It's also like, this is why meteoritics and the social kind of social cultural study of meteoritics matters because we can tell, we need to go back and tell the stories that haven't been told, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, yeah, presumably the, your findings also have some implications for people who are retrieving meteorites for, that have fallen down on, on earth. And yes. I think you've you've been out hunting meteorites again recently yes. because yes. of some reports. Do you want to just um, remind people, our listeners, uh, what you should do if you find a meteorite fragment? Yes, absolutely. So if you think you found a meteorite, um, sp- particularly if there's been a fireball in your area and one of the networks has said it's likely that there is one, um, if you think you found one, the first thing to do before anything else is take a photograph of it, ideally with your location. So use something like what three words or your just GPS coordinates. Note that down somewhere. 
Um, and then do not pick it up with your bare hands. Uh, that's not because they're dangerous. Um, there's going to be no pig vomiting toxins in, in there that's going to hurt you. Um, but that's just because it'll you you will contaminate it. You'll have something on there that we don't want to pick up um, as scientists. Okay, we want to keep this thing pristine as possible. So if you can just collect it using something like aluminium foil, a fresh sandwich bag, something like that that's just um, as, as kind of clean and fresh as you can. And ideally as well, say if it's fallen on some soil or a bit of grass, if it's land that's yours, by the way, don't just collect it if, if, if you're on someone else's, um, you've gone to someone else's house, you've seen it, make sure you ask them. And um, do pick up some of the land as well, um, because we need to be able to rule out what's um, kind of indigenous to the meteorite and what's picked up from the soil. So that's in terms of this work that we've done on Lafayette, if we'd had a bit of the um, uh, the mud from that student who found it at the time, whether it was Clyde or Julius, whoever, um, we would have been able to rule out exactly which of the compounds belong to the meteorite and which of them belong to the soil. And um, obviously there are some which are very obviously based, you know, earth-based, but there were somewhere we would never know um, without kind of isotopic ratios, um, which we're not quite able to do on a compound specific level yet. But that's that's science we're aiming for in the future. So if you can collect a bit of the soil nearby and then contact uh, like your local museum that collects meteorites and um, wherever you are in the world and send them the photo and they'll let you know what to do next. Great. Fantastic. Good advice there. Um, Anya O'Brien, thank you very much. Thank you. During that interview with Margaret Harris, Anya O'Brien mentioned the Winchcombe meteorite, which landed in England in 2021. Now Anya and her colleagues have published a paper about the composition of the meteorite. You can find it in the journal Science Advances, and it's called The Winchcombe Meteorite, a Unique and Pristine Witness from the Outer Solar System. I'll put a link to the paper in the podcast notes on the Physics World website. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by ECS, the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Susanna Horn, Anya O'Brien, and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, do listen to the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. Host Andrew Glester looks at what is being done to reduce the carbon impacts of big sporting events, such as the World Cup and the Commonwealth Games. You can find all the stories episodes on the Physics World website and also at your favorite podcast provider. Physics World.